0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Well, let us open the word of our God together. We turn, first of all, for our Old Testament reading to Exodus chapter 32, the verses 1 to 14, and thereafter Revelation chapter 7, the verses 9 to 17. We begin then our scripture reading with Exodus 32, 1 to 14. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down. Because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And I will give your descendants all this land I promised them. And it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Let's turn next to Revelation chapter 7, beginning at verse 9. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where do they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I preached to you this morning from the word of our God as the church summarizes and confesses that in Lord's Day 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Seeing we've dealt with 127, we move on to 128 and 129. How do you conclude your prayer? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever that is. All this we ask of thee, because as our king, having power over all things, thou art both willing and able to give us all that is good. And because not we, but thy holy name, should so receive all glory forever. What does the word Amen mean? Amen means it is true and certain, for God has much more certainly heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire this of Him. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, this morning we turn our attention to Lord's Day 52, the last part. And this means that, in a sense, we have come to the end of the road. In actual fact, we have come to the end of what you might call a double road. For not only does Lord's Day 52 bring us to the end of the Lord's Prayer, it also brings us to the end of the Heidelberg Catechism. With respect to the Lord's Prayer, we have made our way to the opening address through all six petitions. And now it wraps up with the closing words, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The Lord Jesus started his prayer by instructing us to speak directly to God the Father. So now, as the Lord Jesus teaches us about the ending of this prayer, we are still addressing exactly the same Heavenly Father. And then notice that we are still doing so with hearts filled with confidence and expectation. The ending is no less than the beginning. But nevertheless, this applies not just to this prayer, it also applies to the Catechism. For here in this Lord's Day, we have not just come to the conclusion of a prayer, but also to the conclusion of a rather long Catechism. Here all 52 Lord's Days and 129 questions and answers are coming to a close. But how are they coming to a close? Well, you can say in much the same way as they began, Lord's Day 1 in the beginning is all about Christ, all about victory, all about anticipation. It begins on a note of great comfort. Well, in a sense, Lord's Day 52 at the end is no less so. Christ is still standing in the center. Victory still fills the air. The future is still rich with anticipation. The catechism ends much as it began. In this life, so many things start well, but end miserably. A marriage full of love and dreams of happiness withers and wilts over the course of time. A career brimming over with potential stalls, stymies, stagnates and sinks. A family steeped in harmony and happiness flounders on the shoals of envy and jealousy. In this life, our endings do not always match or surpass our beginnings. But that cannot be said either of this prayer nor of the catechism. They start in hope. They end in hope. They begin with confidence. They end in confidence. They encourage us at the very beginning and they're still encouraging us at the very end. And to see that clearly, beloved, I'd like to preach to you this morning on the following theme. A double ending filled with much praise and deep conviction. And we shall see it resorts to pleading with God. It rests in the possessions of God. It resounds with certainty in God. Well, beloved, the petitions of the Lord's Prayer are over and it's time for the doxology or, as we call them, the words of praise. And here at the end of the Lord's Prayer, there are those well-known words, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Fine words. Fitting words. Also famous words. But the question may well be asked, are they also the words of the Lord Jesus Christ? Did he invent them? Did they too come straight out of his mouth? You will notice that the New International Version, the translation that we use in this church, that it does not have these words as part of the main text. They're in italics. They're in small print. They're also at the bottom of the page. And they even come with a note attached saying, Some late manuscripts. In other words, apparently they are said not to belong to the earliest and the best manuscripts. There seems to be some doubt about their authenticity. There is even the suggestion that some ancient scribe didn't really like the way that the Lord Jesus Christ ended his prayer and therefore devised this fitter and better ending. Now that's interesting, but beloved, it's also speculative. For the fact of the matter is that a very good case can be made for the view that these words come originally from the mouth of our Savior and that they belong to the main body of the biblical text. And in addition, some of the earliest documents of the New Testament church dating back to the 1st and the 2nd centuries include precisely these words. In short, you can say, since the days of our Lord Jesus Christ, these final words of the Lord's Prayer have always been considered to be His words. And we are wise, I think, if we adopt the same view. But then, beloved, if these last words are really the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, what kind of words are they? Well, the almost automatic answer is that they are words of praise, of thanksgiving. But before you say that, you have to note something else. Something that you may often miss and something important. What are you missing? Well, there is a very little word, an almost invisible word, before or that begins this section of praise. and The word is for. The doxology begins for thine is or for yours is. Of course, I realize that some of you may be rolling your eyes right now and thinking, well, what difference does that make? But bear with me for a moment. for that little word for comes from a little Greek word, hoti, which can also be translated as because. And in addition, this little word and the words that come before and after are really one very long sentence. When the Lord Jesus Christ uttered this prayer long ago, there were no breaks in it at all. There were no periods, no new sentences. It was one long sentence loaded with ands. Toward the end of this long sentence, there is this word for or this word because. So what does that mean and what difference does that make? Well, really, beloved, that's telling us that these last words of the prayer form a plea. Actually, the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, Father, hallow your name, bring on your kingdom, fulfill your will, give us bread, forgive us our debts, deliver us from temptation, because because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. You see, Jesus is saying that because kingdom, power, and glory all belong to God, he is able to fulfill every one of these petitions. He is explaining precisely why it is that God ought to answer all of these expectations. In short, beloved, then these final words constitute a request an entreaty, an intercession, Plead. plea. Here our Redeemer is teaching us to plead with God. And that is something that we may have forgotten about. I may be wrong, but I think that our prayers are filled with requests and wants and desires and Praise and thanksgiving, but how much just, how much pleading is there still in our press? I ask that because when you turn to the Scriptures, you cannot fail to meet saints who are often pleading as if almost arguing with God. In that connection, think of Abraham. Think of Abraham and how he pleads for Sodom and in Genesis chapter 18, the verses 23 to 25, where he says, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of these 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing—to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the Judge of all the earth do right? My beloved, you know what follows, and especially you children know what follows. How how Abraham keeps coming back to God. What about? 45, what about 40, what about 30, what about 20, what about 10? Why we hear him keep on pleading and and then we wonder whether perhaps in the process he's not crossing the line. Yes, and he himself wonders too, for he says in verse 32, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there. Beloved, what boldness and what persistence is in his pleading with God. And at the same time, Abraham is not the exception either. Think of of Moses. We've read part of that together in Exodus 32 that incident about the golden calf, O oh Lord, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt? Why should the Egyptians say, Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore? When you listen to Moses, you hear him as well, pulling out all the stops and pleading with God. And he points to the Exodus, and he points to the Egyptians, and he points to the patriarchs, and he points to God himself in his own house. You see, Moses doesn't accept God's initial word. He doesn't crawl away in silence and give up. No, he goes to bat for the people. And he almost challenges the Lord in his will. And what about King Hezekiah? First, he appeals to God to do something about all of those Assyrians swarming into the land and encircling the city of Jerusalem. And second, he refuses to accept it when Isaiah the prophet comes to him and tells him he's going to die. And he says, remember, O Lord, how I walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion, and have done what is good in your eyes? You see, Hezekiah doesn't just surrender in silent submission, hold up a tent, die. No, there is entreaty, there is reminder, there is defense, there is appeal. And so we have the examples of Abraham, Moses, Hezekiah. When it comes to pleading with God, some of the bigger lights, you might say, humanly speaking, in the Old Testament. And and there's more, many more. Turn, for example, to the Psalms. How many of them are not written in exactly the same vein? You know, when you take it all together, you should think for a moment... And not only should you sing, but you should also perhaps examine your own prayers and your own prayer life. How do we pray? Especially how do we pray when we feel deeply about something? Or when we're convinced that someone is really being treated improperly? Or when there's some great need that has to be addressed? Do we simply look at the facts, conclude the verdict has been rendered, shrug our shoulders in defeat, and give in? Do we become fatalistic and say that's just the way it's meant to be? Okay, sirrah, sirrah, but will be, will be. I think, beloved, that all too often we may be guilty of giving up on God too soon and not really pleading our case with Him. When it comes to serious illness, to marital breakdown, to family problems, to material want, to dead-end jobs, we should be going to God earnestly, repeatedly, humbly, stubbornly, persistently. We're not to take a defeatist attitude. In short, we're to take a page out of the book of the saints of old. And maybe, just maybe, we should also take a page out of the book of our children. Many of you know when your children want something, they will not take no for an answer. And they come to you and they say things like, Ah, Dad, I haven't been out all week. I need to bond with my friends. I've worked so very hard and I need a break. Don't you love me? Am I not your favorite son or your favorite daughter? I think quite a few of you know all about the sales pitch that you get. And the point is, beloved, that just like our children exhibit a certain stubbornness when they really are after something, so as believers, it's not wrong to reason, to petition, to beg. Some might even say to badger God. Amazingly enough, our God even invites it. Does he not say to Isaiah the prophet and through Isaiah the prophet to us, come now, let us reason together. That's almost like saying, come now, let's argue together. I want to hear what you have to say. And doesn't he in the New Testament invite us through his son To ask and to keep on knocking, to seek and to keep on knocking, to knock and to keep on knocking. We're not to stop. We're like to be, we're to be like that persistent widow. But then, beloved, all of this may well raise the question on what basis shall we do this? What kind of leverage, what kind of ammunition are we supposed to use in calling on God? Well, that's not very hard to answer. For after giving us that little word for, the Lord's Prayer continues, and it does so reminding us that to our God belong three things. And they're not little minor things either. They're huge. And there's the kind of things that can and that do change things. First, there is the kingdom. What that means is that to God belongs our rulership and sovereignty. Who is really in control these days? If you listen to the election campaign going on in our land right now, and it doesn't even stop on Sunday, you might be inclined to say, the people rule. And almost every day polls are being taken and projections are being made as to what it is that the electorate is going to do. For the future is in the hands of the people. We live in a democracy, and in a democracy the people are in control. Or are they? Perhaps on a superficial level, we might be forgiven for thinking so. But the deeper biblical truth is different. It proclaims that it is God who rules. That today Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. That today he is ruling in the hearts and the lives of his people everywhere around the world already. That today his rule is not obvious and not even so self-evident. And yet he rules. And one day, He will rule in the hearts of everyone, rule publicly and rule obviously and rule eternally. Isn't that what we read about in Revelation? So what's a praying Christian looking for leverage with God supposed to do? He's supposed to turn to God, the God who has the kingdom. Acknowledge who is really in charge of the affairs of this country and this world and plead with him to act. But then, beloved, if his is the kingdom, there is also something else that is his, namely his is the power. And naturally, kingdom and power are closely connected It's God's power that makes and shapes and and brings in the kingdom. And what an astounding power that is. It's the kind of power that can create the world and the universe merely through divine speech. It's the kind of power that can humble mighty empires, whether Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Rome... Napoleon's France, Hitler's Germany, Stalin's Soviet Union. It's the kind of power that can unleash hurricane and flood and earthquake. Oh, unless we forget. It's also the kind of power that can change our lives. Read 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 and following where mention is made of the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, the greedy drunkards, swindlers, slanderers. It's a long, distasteful, and degenerate list. But then Paul adds something to it. He says, and that is... This is what some of you were. But no longer. For you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, beloved, God's power is not just cosmic and detached. It's also very personal. It's very direct. It creates the world, it disciplines the nations, and it transforms human lives. In short, here is a most wonderful resource to call on and to ask for. So, beloved, we may call on God for His kingdom, for His power. And also one more thing mentioned by our Savior, and that is His glory. What's glory? Well, there is one Old Testament root word for glory which means heavy in the sense of impressive or worthy. But yet sometimes we forget there's another Old Testament root word for the same word glory, and it's one that means beautiful. You can translate the doxology in these words, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the beauty. Well, fine, but what does that mean? Well, it means that to our God belongs this ability to restore, to, to make everything new, to make everything shine. We live in a day and age where beauty is muted. Where beauty is so often veiled and incomplete and temporary. But it's not always going to be that way. For scripture again tells us that beauty, true beauty has been reborn. The beauty of God's original creation is not lost, no, it's making a comeback in the Son of God. It's making a comeback. John writes, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. One day, God's plan of salvation will come to its climax. And then God the Father, through Christ his Son, will receive all the praise and the honor and the blessing and the glory. And his beauty will fill the earth. Only, we're not there yet. But just because we're not there yet doesn't mean that we should stop praying that already now and here below we may already receive a foretaste of God's glory. We need hope, encouragement, support. And an abiding sense that a better day is dawning. We need a glimpse of God's beauty to sustain us through the valleys and the dark days of this life. We need an antidote to all of the weakness and sickness and struggles, heartaches and destruction and the depravity that is in the world. And so, beloved, taken together, our pleading is centered on God. And is asking God's rulership, God's power, God's beauty to enter into our lives and into the world. It's for this that we pray. And it's on this basis that we plead. For yours, Lord, really is the kingdom, the power, and the beauty forever. But, will it do us any good? Are these not simply wishful, unrealistic words and pleas? Are we not all guilty of dreaming a pipe dream when we pray this way? Not at all. look at how the prayer ends. Look at how the catechism ends. It ends with one word, and the word is Amen. And what does Amen mean? It's a confession and a confirmation. That what has been prayed for according to the will of God will happen. Our pleas concerning God's name, God's kingdom, God's will, our needs for bread, for forgiveness and deliverance, they will all be heard and they will all be met. That's what we believe. That's what we're sure about. That's even what we feel. Notice how the catechism kind of at the end here gets rather touchy-feely. For God has much more certainly heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire this of Him. So what is the word Amen all about? It's an expression of confidence. It's an affirmation of certainty. It's a shout of faith. In other words, beloved, you can say, this is not a word that I should be saying for you. If you could not speak, it would be different. But if you can, and this really is your word, congregation, it is your answer, it is your confession. I've said it before, and I will say it again. The Amen belongs to you, the people of God. In the near future, we even hope to discuss that further at a congregational meeting. But in the meantime, may our lives be filled not with doubt, but with certainty. With Amen. Amen in our awesome God and in the coming and the doing of his glorious will. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.